Well, hey, everybody, I'm Adam Shaw, the pastor at Malvern Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. In this episode of our podcast, we are going to be starting into a brand new series of sermons that I'm excited about. And I'm excited about this series because over the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about why we do church in the first place, why we come together to worship God week after week, why we get to have a relationship with God in the first place. And it all comes from one of those strange little words you only hear used around the church. So let's get into this morning's episode, and we'll start talking about what that word is and what it means for us. So I mentioned a few weeks ago in one of my sermons that I've been a Christian for more than 30 years. And over the course of the last 30 years, I've noticed that we say and do a lot of things in church that you'll never experience anyplace else in our culture. Let me give you a couple of examples just to show you what I mean. Now, many of you know that I have a daughter who's now 8 years old. And when you have an 8-year-old, that means that your family makes plenty of trips to the theater to see the latest Disney movies. But even though I've seen a whole lot of Disney movies over the years, do you know what I've never seen when I've been in one of those theaters? I have never seen the entire audience stand up and sing along with the hero or the heroine in one of those movies when you reach the big musical number that always happens in a Disney cartoon. But every Sunday when churches meet in person, that's exactly what happens in our sanctuaries. A handful full of times during our services, we all stand up and we sing together. And that's something that really only happens at church. Or before everything closed down due to the coronavirus, I used to go over to one of the big malls here in Louisville on my lunch breaks just to get in a little bit of exercise after sitting at my desk all morning long. But do you know what I've never seen in all of the trips that I've taken to the mall? I have never seen an employee at Bath & Body Works ask one of their customers if they've been washed in the blood of the lamb. And that's because nobody's going to buy that soap. It just sounds gross. But that expression, being washed in the blood of the Lamb, is an expression that people in the church have used for years to talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And believe me, I could keep on going on and on and on about the strange things that we sometimes say and do in church. But what's really strange to me isn't the things that we say and it's not the things that we do. What's really strange to me is that we as a church almost never stop to explain why we say what we say or why we do what we do. Now, maybe that's because we just assume that everybody knows the same things that we know, or maybe it's because we really don't understand the things that we say and the things that we do ourselves. But regardless of the reason, one of the things that I like to do is to take the time to explain some of the strange things that we say and do at church. And over the next couple of weeks, I want to tackle one of the biggest words or phrases that you'll hear used around the church. And if you were paying attention to the video we played right before the sermon started, you might be able to guess what it is that we're going to be talking about. That's right. I want to talk with you about the gospel. Now, if you've spent much time around the church, you've heard the word gospel used in a lot of different situations. You may have been to a church that had a gospel choir or been to a concert where they played gospel music. You may have heard the preacher ask you to turn in your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, or the gospel of John. If you've wandered around through a Christian bookstore, you may have even seen books with titles like The Gospel According to the Peanuts or Star Wars or Harry Potter. 
But what is that word? What does the word gospel really mean? What does the word gospel really mean? Well, the word gospel comes from the Greek word evangelion, which translates to good news. So the word gospel literally means good news. So you can find times in the Bible and times throughout history where the word gospel was used to talk about a victory in a battle or just to report something good that happened in the world. But in the church, when we use the word gospel, it has a different and a deeper meaning. In the church, the word gospel is a shorthand way for us to talk about the good news of Jesus. So that's what I want us to spend our time together over the next few weeks talking about. I want us to talk about the good news of Jesus. And to help us do that, I want to frame our conversation around one of the best-known verses in the entire Bible. And that's John 3.16. And since this is such a well-known verse of Scripture, there's not only a good chance that you've heard it before, there's also a pretty good chance that you've memorized it somewhere along the way. So if you want, you can say it with me. So here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, we're going to dig a little deeper into each section of this verse over the next few weeks, but I want to start out today with the first six words here. For God so loved the world. These words tell us how God feels about us. So how does God feel about you? Well, that seems to be a pretty easy question to answer. John 3.16 tells us that God loves us. But even if we didn't just read those words in John 3.16, there are plenty of other times in the Bible which we believe is a written record where God reveals who he is to us, where God tells us how he feels about us. You can see it in passages like Isaiah 43.4 where God tells us, You are precious in my eyes and you were honored and I love you. And Jeremiah 31.3 where God says, I have loved you with a love that lasts forever. So there should be no question that God loves you. There should be no question that God loves you. But there's a pretty good chance that you question it anyway. There's a pretty good chance that your first thought when I asked you, how does God feel about you, wasn't that God loves you. There's a pretty good chance that when you think about yourself, that you think about all the ways that you've failed in life, or that you think about all the wrong that you've done in your life, or that you think about all the ideals that you just couldn't live up to. So when you hear that God loves you, you wonder if it's really true. And I know there's a pretty good chance that you wonder if God can really love you, because there are times that I wonder if God really loves me, too. We all sometimes wonder if God really loves us, because all of us have some sort of picture in our minds about the kind of person that God really loves. I actually remember doing a Bible, uh, an activity in a Bible study years and years ago while I was in college, where we were asked to draw a picture of the perfect Christian. And even though it's been close to 20 years since that particular Bible study, I still remember sitting down with several of my friends to start brainstorming what our picture would look like. Now, we decided that our perfect Christian needed to be wearing an Oral Roberts University t-shirt, and they had to have a well-worn Bible that was falling apart at the seams in their hands. 
We also decided that our perfect Christian needed to be wearing a baseball cap with a Jesus fish logo on it and to have a cross pendant hanging from his neck. We figured that the knees on his blue jeans needed to be worn out from all the time that he spent on his knees in prayer, and the soles of his shoes needed to be missing because he had been walking throughout the whole world to share the good news of Jesus with the nations. We wanted our perfect Christian to be wearing headphones that were blasting out Amazing Grace with the Mighty Fortress is Our God next up in the queue on his iPod. Remember, this was 20 years ago. And we wanted the ringtone on his phone to be the Hallelujah Chorus. We wanted his eyes to be fixed on the heavens while the walls behind him were going to be covered up with awards and certificates for all the good work that he was doing on earth, like serving as a volunteer firefighter or making regular contributions and donations to the Red Cross and helping little old ladies cross the street. And it was about that time that our Bible study leader asked us to wrap things up. But I have a feeling that we could have kept going on for hours. Now next we were asked to stand up and explain our illustrations, highlighting all of the details that we included in our pictures. And after everyone had a good laugh at how ridiculous our ideals were, the Bible study leader got to the point and she asked us, how do you measure up compared to your perfect Christian? If your perfect Christian has worn out the knees on their blue jeans from all the time that they spend in prayer, then how's your prayer life? If their Bible is about to fall apart at the seams from the time that they've spent digging into it, then what does your Bible look like? If your ideal Christian takes their faith seriously enough to choose a college or a career based on it, then how seriously do you take your faith? If they're always listening to classic hymns or contemporary Christian music, how does that compare to the playlist that's on your iPod? And with every one of those questions, with every one of those comparisons, the realization set in that I didn't have a whole lot in common with my ideal Christian. And it made me wonder, if this is the ideal, then what does God think about me? And you've probably wondered that too. So what do you think? Deep down inside, how does God feel about you? The real you. Now I want you to listen to me right now because what I'm about to say is the most important thing that you'll hear me say. And that's not just true of this morning. This is the most important thing that you will ever hear me say. So are you ready? Because here it is. God loves you. Really. God loves you. Seriously. God loves you. And that's not just something that I'm saying because I'm the preacher and I'm supposed to say it. And it's not something that I'm saying to try to make you feel better about yourself. I'm saying it because it's true. God loves you. God really loves you. In fact, God loves you so much that John 3.16 just told us that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, into this world for you. And there's a story that takes place in Jesus' life that I want to tell you that shows us all how much God loves us. This story is told in the Gospel of Luke, or Luke's account of the life of Jesus, and it takes place at a dinner party that Jesus, God's Son, has been invited to. So let's turn to Luke 7.36 and listen to this story. Here's what it says. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. After he entered the Pharisee's home, he took his place at the table. Now, that's an interesting way to start the story. We're told that Jesus is about to sit down and eat with the Pharisee. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Pharisees, but hearing that Jesus was about to eat with one of them is a little like hearing that a UK fan and a U of L fan are going to get together to watch the big game. 
Now, you know that they're going to try to be civilized toward each other, but it doesn't mean that either one of them is going to be really happy to be there. And you also know there's a pretty good chance that by the end of the game, there's going to be some fireworks that happen. Because here's the thing. A Pharisee was one of the elite religious leaders of his day. And the Pharisees, they weren't the kind of people who ever wondered if God loved them. These were the keepers and the teachers of their faith. They thought of themselves as being as close to perfect as you could possibly be. So they had no doubt that God loved them. But here's where things get interesting. Picking back up in verse 37. Meanwhile, a woman from the city, a sinner, discovered that Jesus was dining in the Pharisee's house. She, bought, she brought perfumed oil in a vase made of alabaster. Standing behind him at his feet and crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the oil on them. So Jesus has been invited by one of the religious elite to dinner. But while he's there, Luke tells us that a woman from the city, a sinner, shows up. Now over the years, there's been a whole lot of speculation about who this woman is or what particular sin she may have committed. But all Luke tells us is that she was a sinner. A sinner. That's the exact same word that Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, used to describe himself a couple of chapters earlier in the book of Luke when he told Jesus, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. So based on the way that Luke describes this woman, she was no better or no worse than one of Jesus' closest followers. She was a sinner who had come to the feet of Jesus. But that's not exactly how the Pharisee saw things. As the story continues, we learn. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw what was happening, he said to him, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman is touching him. He would know that she is a sinner. Here the Pharisee looks at this woman, and he sees everything that is wrong with her. He knows her reputation. He knows that she's a sinner. And in his mind, he's thinking that if Jesus truly is a man of God, then he would know who this woman is. He would want nothing to do with her. If Jesus knew who this woman is, then he wouldn't love her. He would loathe her. And that's the same way that many of us think about ourselves. We think that if Jesus really knew us, he wouldn't love us. He would loathe us. But this Pharisee, well, he was about to learn an important lesson. And it's a lesson that all of us need to learn, too. The Pharisee is going to learn that not only did Jesus know everything about this woman, he also knew everything that the Pharisee was thinking. In Luke 7, verse 40, we're told, Jesus replied, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, speak, he said. A certain lender had two debtors. One owed enough money to pay 500 people for a day's work. The other owed enough money for 50. When they couldn't pay, the lender forgave the debts of them both. Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, Well, I suppose the one who had the largest debt canceled. Jesus said, You've judged correctly. Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? When I entered your home, you didn't give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, 
but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has poured perfumed oil on my feet. This is why I tell you that her many sins have been forgiven. So she has shown great love. The one who is forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other table guests began to say among themselves, Who is this person that even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. With this woman still washing his feet, Jesus begins to talk to this Pharisee, a man named Simon. And he tells Simon a story and he asks him a question. He tells him a certain lender had two debtors. One owed enough money to pay 500 people for a day's work. The other owed enough money for 50. When they couldn't pay, the lender forgave the debts of them both. Which of them will love him more? In this little story, the two debtors represent us, imperfect people. These are both people who have come up short in life. These are both people who have failed in life. These are both people that could not live up to the ideals in life. These are both people that God should not have loved. But both of these people are forgiven. They're forgiven of their debts. They're forgiven of their shortcomings. They're forgiven of their failures. They're forgiven for not being perfect, for not living up to the ideal. So when Jesus looks at this woman sitting on the floor beside him at the table, Jesus doesn't see her debt. Jesus doesn't see her sin. Jesus doesn't see her shortcomings. Jesus doesn't see her failures. Jesus doesn't see that she's not perfect. And why is that? Well, it's because just like the debtors in the story, this woman has been forgiven. And Psalm 103 verse 12 tells us, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sins from us. Now, I want you to think about that for just a minute. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sins from us. Now, I want you to imagine that after our service this morning, that you want to hop in your car and you want to travel north. Well, if you travel north long enough, you'll eventually hit the North Pole. And then you'll start traveling south again. And if you travel 12,430 miles south, you're going to hit the South Pole. And then you'll be traveling north again. But now imagine that you want to head east. At what point do you start traveling west again? Never. You never start traveling west again. If you head east, you will continue to go, in, go toward the east forever, unless you change directions. And that's how God sees our sins and our shortcomings. So stop believing that God is angry with you. Stop believing that God is upset with you. Stop believing that God wants nothing to do with you and realize that God loves you. God loves you for who you are. God accepts you for exactly who you are. No matter how many times you failed, God loves you. No matter how imperfect your life may appear, God loves you. No matter how afraid you are that no one would want to be around you if they knew the real you, God loves you. No matter how much you believe that God could never love a person like you, God loves you. But here's the thing. I know that just hearing me say that God loves you a half a dozen times as we get toward the end of the sermon, that it's not enough for that reality to sink in. So I want to challenge you to do something this week. 
I want you to read a series of scripture every day this week. We're going to put them up on the screen for you right now, and I want you to write them down so that you can do this. Every day this week, I want you to read Romans 3.23, Ephesians 1.7, Psalm 103.12, and Isaiah 43.4 in that order. Every day. It's Romans 3.23, Ephesians 1.7, Psalm 103.12, and Isaiah 43, verse 4. And when you read them, this is what you'll hear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. And when God forgives our sins as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sins from us. And because our sins are forever removed from us, we know that God means it when he says, You are precious in my eyes, you are honored, and I love you. So read those four verses every day this week. Listen to God tell you that you are loved. Because that's not how most of us feel. That's not how most of us think about ourselves. But it's the truth. God loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his son into this world for you. Now, next week, we'll keep exploring John 3.16 and talk about what happens next. But for now, I just want you to hear those first few words again. For God so loved the world. The world, it includes you. God loves you. God loves you more than you can imagine. Never forget that. Never forget how loved you are. Let's pray together. God, as we come to you now in this time of prayer, you know that a lot of us don't think of ourselves as being loved by you. We have these images and ideals in our mind about what someone is supposed to be like for them to truly be loved by you. And God, we know that all of us fall short of those ideals that we, that we think it means for someone to truly be loved by you. But God, those ideals aren't what you care about. What you care about are each of us as individuals. God, you made every single one of us, and you don't make mistakes. So you created us on purpose and for a purpose, God, and you love every one of us because of that. So God, help us to see ourselves as you see us, as people who are truly loved for exactly who we are. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, it's Adam again, and thanks for listening to this episode of our sermon podcast, and I hope that you've heard the message, the first part of the gospel, and the first part of the gospel, that good news, is that God loves you. Really, God loves you. Seriously, God loves you. Now, next week, we're going to keep talking a little bit more about what it means for God to love us, but we're also going to be digging a little bit deeper into John 3.16 and talking about the word perish we find in that verse and what that means for us as well. So come back and join us next Sunday when our next episode drops. And as always, if you subscribe to our podcast, it'll be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. So until next week, I hope that you guys have a great week this week. Stay safe. I'll be praying for you. And we'll see you back here next Sunday for another sermon podcast.